You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Starlink in focus after Elon Musk says SpaceX can't fund satellites in Ukraine indefinitely. How could it impact the war? We'll discuss. Plus, new filings show Elon Musk is under federal investigation over his deal with Twitter, or potential deal, we should say. We'll talk about all this and what it means for the company's future with Twitter founding member and a former board member, Jason Goldman. And pure speculation, that is what Meta is calling the FTC's antitrust concerns over a deal to buy the VR fitness company within Unlimited. What hurdles Zuckerberg will face trying to dismiss the case this hour. All of that in a moment, but first, it was a brutal end of the week for markets. We're going to get the latest now with Bloomberg's Emily Graffeo. Emily, what a week and what a Friday. Hi, Emily. What a week. I mean, stocks pretty much ending in the red to finish a volatile week. We saw the S&P 500 pretty much falling all day, finishing down about 2.4%. This is after that one-year U-Michigan inflation expectation survey rose for the first time in seven months. We saw traders ramping up expectations for how aggressive the Federal Reserve is going to be. That U.S. two-year yield topping 4.5% for the second day in a row. NASDAQ 100 underperforming and really coming under pressure in the technology space is those semiconductors. The Philadelphia Semiconductors Index down about 4.46%, all about a lack of demand and, again, concerns of those rising rates. Taking a look at some of the individual movers in the S&P 500 in the stock market, Apple down about 3.2% today. It was actually the biggest contributor to the S&P 500's decline today. Twitter, though, rare standout here, up just a little bit, about 0.2% to finish the day. This is after its reversing course after it fell yesterday on news that Twitter sought documents last week related to a federal investigation into that Musk deal. And speaking of Elon Musk, let's take a look at Twitter stock falling about 7.7% today. It actually closed today 50% below its November 2021 
closing high. The stock has just been absolutely crushed. I mean, one year down about 25%. However, I looked back to how it performed since the end of 2019. It's still up about 630%. It's easy to forget about that run that Tesla has had when we look at these short-term movements. But overall, Tesla getting crushed with the rest of the stock market, Emily. Good. Good point, Emily. Thank you for that update, Emily Grafeo. Meantime, the Pentagon says it is in touch with SpaceX in regards to Starlink satellites in Ukraine that provide crucial broadband support in the war against Russia. This following Elon Musk's threat to cut off financial support for Starlink terminals in the region. He's putting pressure on other entities now to step in and make up the shortfall after uh, costing SpaceX at least $80 million. The Pentagon says it could turn to options other than Starlink. This all following an earlier dispute over Musk's public comments suggesting the government in Kyiv cede territory in exchange for peace with Russia. For more on this, I want to bring in Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow as well as Dr. DJ Peterson, president of Longview Global Advisors, which is advising business leaders and investors on short and long-term risks of the Russia-Ukraine war. Ed, I want to start with you. What exactly did Elon Musk say, and why is he saying it right now? Yeah, so in a tweet response, uh, he basically said that he was following the advice of a Ukrainian diplomat, a Ukrainian envoy, who had used profane language, which I won't repeat on this program, but basically said Elon Musk should take a hike uh, for want of a better expression. And Musk said in his tweet, we're just following his recommendation. That led to a wide range of media coverage uh, and suggestions that actually Elon Musk might uh, pull support, either funding support or literally operational support for Starlink in the country. And we know, as you said, Em, that, that the Pentagon say as of Friday, they're engaged with SpaceX over the broad issue of Starlink and the Pentagon saying that they'd have other issues. But for SpaceX, this is very much an issue of cost um, in terms of how Starlink's operating in that country. DJ, how crucial is Starlink to Ukraine's defenses? Emily, I think it's central to their defenses. If you think about First of all, their ability to wage war. You think about how much they have integrated Western military gear into their um, operations. Well, the communications is essential as well. And one of the things the Ukrainians have done much better than the Russians is actually coordinate their defense and offense across a very, very long uh, a line of contact. And so... This is essential um, for coordination. It's essential for targeting and using the Western technology very well. Um, if you think about a lot of this area, it's very rural. It's spread out. They're very great distances, so traditional radios might not work. As we know, um, the Russians have knocked out so much infrastructure. So this is crucial. And it's, it's actually a very important leveraging factor of leveraging all this other assistance that the West is giving. Can you give us an idea, DJ, how much these satellites cost to manage and whether that resonates with what Elon Musk has said here? Right. There's a lot of just kind of debate around the numbers. And as we saw with the Twitter deal, kind of playing loose with numbers around what is real and what is not real in the, in the Twitterverse. So I think we do have to take these numbers uh, with a grain of salt. 
Um, you know, generally speaking, if you look at what has been deployed in the field already that we know is about 12,000 units, it is, has cost probably around 80 80 million um, to 100 million. So that number that uh, that that uh, that he has put out is is not is not too bad. I mean, when you get to these issues around, he's raised the issue of just maintaining the satellite network and cybersecurity. Well, that's a cost of doing business as a big global firm. So I'm I'm a little bit less um, I'm a little bit more skeptical of that. I think another thing we need to pay attention to, if you're looking at the cost side, is obviously the Ukrainians have asked for much more in terms of uh, these units on the ground, the transmitter units. I mean, do they need them all? Will they get them all? So that goes into, say, the $400 million number that um, that um, SpaceX has put out. So that's, that's an ask. It's not necessarily going to be delivered. And then finally, I want to add that We've talked about a, a commitment about over a year. And frankly, from my perspective, Longview Global Advisors take is that this war is not going to last another year. Russia has only months to fight. So it's not clear really how at this point will they need all these um, all the satellite comms for for an entire year. So it needs to be played out. But officials that I've talked to in the U.S. government say it's not a reasonable ask and it's not an unreasonable lift, hmm. not only for the U.S., but also for all of our allies that are supporting. So combined, um, I think there's a lot of countries that would be willing to contribute. Meantime, Ed, there's a report that Elon Musk spoke to Russian President Vladimir Putin before he made those public tweets, public comments, that public uh, Twitter poll, poll suggesting how Ukraine could seek peace with Russia, of course, widely criticized. Elon Musk is denying that, that right. he spoke to Putin. What do we know about this? Yeah, I mean, categorically, Elon Musk has denied that he spoke directly to Putin about Ukraine. So on Monday of this week, Ian Bremmer, who is the head of risk consultancy group Eurasia, said that he spoke to Musk about two weeks ago. He hadn't been planning on revealing um, what was in that conversation, but decided to in his regular newsletter after he saw Musk's own comments on Twitter about Ukraine. And he said that Musk had told him, Musk had told Bremer, that he had spoken to Putin about the issue of Ukraine, you know, which was uh, controversial. Um, so Musk denied it, but Musk went further to say that he hadn't spoken to Putin for about 18 months, which you know essentially predates the war, the current conflict in Ukraine. DJ, why do you imagine Musk would present this Starlink issue to the public, given the controversy about whether or not he spoke to Putin and when, and given the controversy over his Twitter poll in general? Emily, that's a great question. And frankly, I find it dumbfounding. Um, really, um, Musk got into a lot of trouble um, politically, obviously, as, 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 as well as reputationally by making uh, this statement about Russia. He got a lot of favorable press in Russia. Um, not a good thing. I also think the timing is very bad because it's on the heels of days of massive Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure. So is he, it, 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 it looks like he's, you know, he's trying to pay, play up a situation where Ukraine's in a bind. Um, and that's not good either. There is a deal to be had here. I think the allies are more than willing, given all that we've spent, 400 million, 
um, dollars is actually not that much. So there is a deal to be had here, but he's not doing, uh, he should not be presenting himself as a global state. That's not his strength, and he is clearly screwing up um, on this repeatedly. Hmm. All right. Uh, not mincing words there. Dr. DJ Peterson, Longview Global Advisors President, along with our own Ed Ludlow, we're going to have a little bit more on the Musk Twitter saga later this hour. Here's something else we're following. Instacart slashing its valuation for the third time. The new valuation of about $13 billion was announced internally this week, according to sources. It was valued at most $39 billion back in March 2021. Instacart's executives reiterated the company still intends to go public, but is waiting for market conditions to improve. Meta is pushing back against the FTC's attempt to block its acquisition of the virtual reality app within Unlimited. Meta arguing the FTC hasn't laid out the elements to show the deal announced in uh, October of 2021 would actually hurt potential competition in VR fitness. Earlier this week, Mark Zuckerberg advertised the metaverse as the future of work, gaming and entertainment. Here to discuss Bloomberg's Alex Barinka. So what precedent, Alex, is this feud between Meta and the FTC setting? Yeah, so this is actually um, a, a move that is under the umbrella of FTC Chair Lena Khan. She's taken a much more aggressive stance against big tech. And this uh, suit to block the acquisition of Within, this virtual reality fitness company, is one of those kind of big swings she seems to be taking. Now, the latest drama, Emily, um, last week, the FTC actually narrowed its argument to block the deal, uh, basically only leaning into this idea that the acquisition would kill potential competition in a future market. Uh, they killed the argument that the acquisition uh, would consolidate power under Meta with its Beat Saber app. In response to that, Meta is coming out this week and basically saying, hey, if this is the argument you're making, we don't think you have enough here um, to actually block this deal. And they're asking the judge to dismiss it. In terms of what happens next, Emily, the judge can rule on this and have some hearings or uh, the hearings on the injunction could actually uh, still go forward in December and the judge make a decision after that. But either way, Emily, uh, folks who watch the FTC and its antitrust um, actions and meta and the metaverse will be paying attention to this at least through the end of the year. Why is meta so keen to buy a virtual fitness company? Yeah, and, and I think an illustration of that, Emily, we saw it firsthand, if you were like me, with a, an Oculus strapped to your face this week. Uh, Meta had their Connect product conference on Tuesday, and they showed off basically all of the things they're bringing to the metaverse. Right now, uh, Meta's argument to get folks living in this virtuality world is really dependent on what you can do there. They talked about video games. They talked about a lot of new um, partners. But this fitness uh, idea, they spent a, a number of minutes talking about it on Tuesday. Fitness is one of the things that they said their users come in every month for. And Within's game, Supernatural, is one of these fitness apps where you can have the controllers in your hand, you can have the Oculus on your face, and you can move their body. So it's key to this kind of argument for them of why people need to show up to the virtual world that, frankly, they're spending $10 billion a year on. Now, Meta reports earnings in just a few weeks. Obviously, the market cap has tanked 
over the last year, if 10% of the revenue is going to metaverse efforts, what are you watching for? Uh, I mean, I, I'm watching what investors think. As you said, the stock is down more than 60% since January. Um, they are also paying attention to what's paying the bills uh, for Meta. You know, Meta, who used to be called Facebook, who owns Instagram and all of the social media properties. It's been a really tough year um, for marketing budgets. Advertisers haven't been spending as much on ads, which is where all of the social media properties make their money. So that's what I'll be paying kind of the most attention to. And frankly, Emily, that is probably uh, the thing that's going to determine how much patience investors continue to have with Mark uh, Zuckerberg, the CEO, and his aspirations to spend a tenth of, of every dollar that comes in onto something that, you know, has it really materialized this metaverse, this digital universe? All right, Bloomberg's Alex Barinka, who covers social media for us. Thank you for keeping us up to date. Okay, coming up, network effects made Facebook, Uber, even Bitcoin a thing. What's the next big thing? We're going to talk to an investor focused on betting on network effects next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. 
Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Network effects impacts all of that. If you're going to be spending your life's energies building a startup, it's going to take 100% of your effort. You're trying to defend the business area that you've carved out. You might as well be working on a business that has network effects because then you'll have a shot at going the distance and making a real impact in the world and creating true value for your employees, for your investors, and for your whole network. of the teaser there for the venture firm NFX's Masterclass on Network Effects, a new program by the venture capital firm to help startups build at scale. For more on it, I want to bring in NFX founding partner, James Courier. James, it's kind of like a VC masterclass, if you will. Uh, what do founders get access to with this and what are you hoping they take away? Yeah, so as you know, NFX is a seed stage firm, uh, we're probably the largest seed stage only firm in the, in the world. And, you know, our mission is to help 10 million founders. Uh, we can only invest in a few hundred, but we can help them with software and with content. And the content that we've most recently released is this masterclass on network effects. So the name of our firm is NFX, which stands for network effects. But, you know, and we've done blog posts and we've done tweets. We've done other ways of sort of educating folks about uh, what we see with network effects and how you use them to build the giant companies of today and the future. Uh, this masterclass is our next level product where we encapsulate about 20 years of learning about network effects and then bring that into three hours of, of video so that founders and teams with the founders can really educate themselves quickly about this most powerful tool in building giant, important tech companies. So we mentioned companies like Facebook and Uber and, you know, even Bitcoin um, has been a success because of network, network effects. What are the startups that are being built now based on network effects that you think are going to be the next big thing? Yeah, so companies like um, Mammoth Biosciences is building a platform network effect, like uh, an operating system, really, like a Microsoft or an iOS, but they're doing it in the biotech space. They're based in the Bay Area, recently raised it over a billion dollars. And we think, you know, Jennifer Doudna, the Nobel Prize winner, is one of the founders. This company is going to be a monster. Another company you might have heard of recently is called Incredible Health which uh, is run by Iman Abuzaid uh, in Rome, and they have built a marketplace between nurse labor forces and then the hospitals that hire them. So they install software in the hospitals, and then they, they bring the hiring to, to the hospitals so they can you know, find the nurses that they're understaffed on. So many businesses, both in marketplaces, platforms, as well as the ones you're talking about, like Twitter and Facebook, which have direct network effects, because there are actually 16 different network effects, we're finding a lot of different companies that are today building in new ways uh, using these techniques that can create multi-billion dollar companies. And Incredible Health and Mammoth are two that are already unicorns and, and uh, heading on up from there. 
Well, we've had both uh, Iman Abouzid and Jennifer Dowden on the show, so I'm glad we're on the right track. Um, you know, we are in the middle of a massive downturn. There could be a lot farther to fall here. How concerned are you about that? And, you know, how is it impacting your investment strategy? Yeah, you know, NFX, as sort of the largest seed fund, we see across a whole bunch of different verticals, like marketplaces and fintech, prop tech, games, biotech, Web3. We're investing across a lot of different uh, verticals, and but we're investing for seven to 10 years from now. So in that way, we're a little bit insulated from the current market conditions and are still looking for founders with big ideas, particularly ones with network effects, because the next two to three years won't really matter for them when we invest this year. What will matter is what the market conditions are seven years from now and what uh, the market will value them at then the market will decide. But in the meantime, we're looking to build, you know, 100 million of revenue, 200 million of revenue in real businesses, and we can invest now. So actually, uh, we do feel like now is the best time in the last four years to start a company. Uh, so we're leaning aggressively in. We leaned aggressively in during COVID. We actually ran a program called FAST, where we offered one to, one, uh, one to $2 million for 15% of companies within nine days. Okay, and we touched... Uh, 4,000 companies at that time, right at the beginning of COVID. And now that we're in this downturn, a similar thing is happening. So, so does that mean you're not worried? I mean, last quick question. I mean, we're, we're talking about Instacart. We just talked about Instacart slashing its valuation from $39 billion to $13 billion. I mean, you're seeing some huge haircuts here. We are. And those companies were seeded 6, 8, 12 years ago. Our venture firm started five years ago. So we are still in the period of rapid growth for a lot of our companies. And so far, we're not affected by these huge markdowns we're seeing. And again, where we're deploying capital is for seven to 10 years from now. And most seed funds are doing that. That includes us because we're focused on that stage. All right. NFX founding partner, James Courier on your new VC masterclass. Thank you for stopping by. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. We've got some breaking news crossing the terminal now that News Corp does indeed uh, confirm it will explore a combination with Fox Corporation. News Corp saying it received letters from Rupert Murdoch and his trust. To that effect, there had been some reporting that Murdoch was considering uh, reuniting his media empire, if you will, that he split back in 2013. News Corp now confirming that it will explore uh, combining once again with Fox. Meantime, Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter has had so many twists and turns that one might forget this all started back on January 31st. That is when Musk quietly began buying Twitter shares. He's since gotten a lot louder in so many ways. And Bloomberg Businessweek broke down Musk's tweets by the numbers. Joining us now for more on an in-depth look at what's been going viral all year long, really, is Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. So uh, Businessweek crunching the numbers here. What interesting insights, Ed, did that yield? Yeah, I think, first of all, it's the frequency and volume of the tweets since January, right? I think in May... We were surprised how quickly Elon Musk put the deal on hold and, and raised his concerns about the level of bots on the platform. And if we look at the chart of his weekly tweets, volume of weekly tweets,
tweets, you can see that just after that deal's put on hold, there's kind of a big spike in the number of tweets he's making, right? And he's talking a lot about the concerns in particular about bots. And then things go very quiet. And of course, just a few weeks later, everything changed because Twitter sues to enforce the original terms of the deal. He tweets memes, he tweets emojis, he tweets polls. Does he have a favorite kind of tweet? You know, what's really interesting is that the overwhelming number of tweets that Musk sends are replies. And this was why everyone was so interested in this deal in the first place, right? Elon Musk is one of the most active and well-followed users on Twitter. But it's not just him sending original tweets. It's mostly him replying to other users. And we know that he engages really actively with other Tesla users, people that he is a fan of, people interested in SpaceX. Um, and, and you can see from that chart quite clearly that that that's how he uses engagement. Very few of the tweets he sent since January 31st have been retweets either. What's he been tweeting about the most? Is it Tesla? Is it Twitter? Is it SpaceX? Is it repopulating the world? You know, Em, you and I have been living this deal night and day about Elon Musk buying Twitter. But actually, if you break down the tweets and do the analysis, he's not obsessed with Twitter. He's not tweeting a lot about Twitter. Most of it is about his other companies, Tesla, SpaceX. You know, he's really engaged when SpaceX has a successful mission. He tweets a lot about Tesla. Space generally is a topic high up there. EV, no surprise. And you look down there, actually, the interesting number to me is crypto. You know, he hasn't tweeted as much as one might think about crypto, at least in the tweets sent since January 31st of this year. And, and, you know, when he has talked about Twitter, you know, where does he focus? I mean, certain, there are certain tweets, of course, that have gotten a lot more attention than others. Well, this links to that first chart, bots. He tweets a lot about the bots issue on the platform, right? He doesn't necessarily talk so much about some of the characters involved. Management, he does on occasion, but the focus is really on bots, which is one big portion of that pie chart on your screen. The other one that I find really interesting is, is the number of tweets about issues of censorship and bias. And we know that one of the big considerations for Elon Musk is policy, right? We want to know what policies will change in terms of content moderation and who will be allowed on the platform or allowed back onto the platform if indeed he does go through to buy this deal. But that, to me, of the four, that pie chart is certainly the most telling. All right. I'd love, love. Thanks for walking through all of that for us and um, bringing us all the data. Joining us now to continue this conversation, Jason Goldman, one of the founding members of Twitter, of course. He's also the former White House chief digital officer under President Obama. Always some good insider, outsider perspective from you. Jason, you know, one of the latest developments that we haven't talked a lot about yet, this, these revelations from Twitter that Elon Musk was being investigated by federal authorities over his acquisition conduct, if you will. What do you make of this? Yeah, I, I mean, it's difficult to say because we don't know which federal agency was investigating him. I think it's a little premature to think there's much fire there um, because this could be as simple as Twitter's lawyers trying to get their hands on the on the information that Elon shared with the SEC. We know that he was contacted by the SEC as a related to this deal. And so it might just have been something that they put in the filing to get information about that. So without actually finding out what kind of investigation was involved. It's a little premature to say, oh, there's something super nutty going on here. That being said, you can never really discount the super nutty in this particular story. So what 
what's your hunch? Does a deal happen by October 28th? And are there more surprises between now and then? I think it's, again, I would never rule out more surprises. I, I believe a deal happens. I just don't have a ton of high conviction about it. Um, I think what's likely happening now is that the lawyers from both sides are trying to figure out how to execute this deal uh, in in between two parties that have absolutely no reason to trust one another. And so it's how do we get all of the money in one place and you show us that you have all the money and then we quickly take all the money and you get the Twitter uh, without, you know, without involving a lot of other contingencies, uh, which Twitter is just not going to accept at this point. So say Elon Musk gets the Twitter and it happens in a couple of weeks. What do you think happens to Twitter under Elon Musk? And, and what's the biggest risk? I think the biggest risks are sort of twofold. One is I think there's going to be a lot of brain drain. I think a lot of people are going to either leave of their own volition or uh, or be fired. And we'll get into why I think that's a, a problem for the company and the world. And then the other is I think Twitter is just going to be subject to the kind of reactive decision making that Elon has shown both publicly in his comments about the company and now privately in what we've seen from the tax uh, to be someone who's just, you know, doesn't respond well to pushback or criticism, likes to be praised, uh, likes to be given, uh, you know, accolades about, um, you know, how smart he is and, and, and what great ideas he could bring forward. And, but despite all of that, just still does not have a serious plan for what to do with the, for what to do with the platform. And I think that puts the company in a dangerous place. And I think it puts its users in a dangerous place. Okay, uh, here, here's a similar question another way. What's one thing that Musk could do that would make Twitter better? And do you think he'll do it? I think, oh, the easiest thing that he could do to make it better is to immediately remove himself from the decision-making involved in it. Like if he if he somehow moved the company into some kind of foundation and said, this is going to be run in a nonprofit way, you know, actually, you know, Jack and I don't agree on a lot of things, but Jack has this notion about, you know, Twitter returning to be a protocol and, you know, this, this notion that uh, it needs to be just one client running on top of a technical protocol. If, if Elon were to kind of divest himself of the authority and decision-making power around on the platform, that would be one positive thing he could do, and then just leave it to actual subject matter experts to evolve the technology needed to do that. So I've been dying to know what your thoughts are on the text exchanges between Musk and Jack. You know, what was your big takeaway? I mean, of course, you had this hunch all along that they were somehow in cahoots. Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty obvious from the proxy filing that Jack had had a conversation with Elon in which he expressed his own opinion that it would be better in independent hands. We find out from the text the text that Jack, when Elon agrees to do this, that Jack is overcome with emotion that he would then say later publicly is, you know, the singular solution to Twitter's problems has shown up. You know, he, was, he just couldn't believe that this, you know, Messiah had arrived uh, to save Twitter from this board that Jack had both put together as, as during his 10 years running the company, but now simply couldn't stand to be in business with anymore. And so the, the the text reveals someone, you know, and Jack, who is just frustrated and pretty much done running the company and then willing to completely throw under the bus anyone at the company, including Prague, the CEO, uh, who got in the way of Elon coming in to take it over, despite the fact that Elon at no point to Jack, either in private or in public, expressed any real idea of what he wanted to do with it. Certainly nothing that was in line with what Jack thought needed to happen, this idea of making it a protocol. That's nothing that Elon has picked up at all. Uh, so I think the text just revealed, not only from Jack, but in general, just how, uh, you know, how willing people are to uh, appease Elon and that anyone who pushes back on him uh, immediately gets, you know, pushed to the side. We haven't 
heard from the other Twitter founders, Ev Williams and Biz Stone. I, you know, I know you're close with them, and I'm, I'm. What do they think about this to the extent that you can share? Yeah, I, I prefer to just sort of speak for myself. I, I am close with the other, the founders and a number of other early employees. Um, but I, you know, I think for for all of us that were there in the early time of the company, you know, we've uh, we've always had self-inflicted wounds. Uh, we've always had, you know, periods of turmoil with the company. I think despite differences in terms of like, oh, you know, I didn't think Jack should be CEO and then Jack didn't think that Ev should be CEO and that was a big rift in the company. I never really doubted, for example, Jack's willingness to do what was necessary to make Twitter a better product, or nor did I doubt that he had true conviction and passion about how Twitter should grow into the world. What we're seeing now, though, is just someone who who doesn't have that kind of expertise. We're seeing instead someone who's been told by everyone who's blowing up his text messages in the world writ large that he's the second coming of Thomas Edison. He's a genius who can enter any problem. And despite a lack of subject matter expertise, he's going to be able to um, fix these very difficult problems. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous for the geopolitical reasons that you talked about at the top of the show, that you're talking about someone who is incredibly susceptible to flattery and influence and believes too highly in his own abilities. And that's going to create the context for a large mistake to happen, whether that's, you know, shutting off access uh, in Ukraine or that's uh, inadvertently or purposely revealing user data to uh, an authoritarian state that's trying to get information uh, about dissidents uh, who are coordinating on Twitter. Remember, Twitter's never really had a problem with China because Twitter doesn't exist in China. But Elon exists in China. Tesla exists in China. So now China has an incredibly strong lever over Elon in order to jeopardize user safety and and, and jeopardize dissidents in Hong Kong, Taiwan, or wherever else. That's a real problem. Uh, and it doesn't require it doesn't require a secret you know, conversation between Elon and Putin. It's just obvious on his face that he's going to be susceptible to these kind of pressures. Quickly, how concerned are you about this all happening right before a midterm election, you know, especially given your time with the Obama administration? I'm not too concerned about I'm not too concerned about the midterms. I think it's you know too close to the to the midterms to be a problem. I think for future election cycles, not just domestically about uh, but around the world, I think it is a concern because not so much for putting the thumb on the on the scale for a particular political party. And I I don't think Trump should be on Twitter, but I also kind of discount how important that is. Uh, I think it's more the, a problem that around the world we know, as you know, the Washington report, Washington Post said that autocrats already use the platforms to spread lies about opponents and whip up violence and mayhem. And that's a problem because Elon's going to be able uh, to tip the scales for those kind of forces around the world. Jason Goldman, one of the founding members of Twitter, the former White House chief digital officer. Always good to hear your thoughts, Jason. Thank you for stopping by. Coming up, the crypto exchange that just raised $165 million in a downturn. Uniswap COO Mary Catherine later with us next to tell us more. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. 
That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year, That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Exchange Uniswap has just raised $165 million in a Series B funding round led by Polychain Capital. This values the company at $1.66 billion. Uniswap says it's one of the largest funding rounds for a crypto firm since the market downturn earlier this year, even as the crypto market is still struggling and some investors are starting to lose confidence in DeFi. Uniswap COO Mary Catherine Later joins us now. So, um, Mary Catherine, what is it do you think about Uniswap that you know got investors to pay up given these very difficult market conditions? Thanks. Well, thanks for having me on. I think what we've learned in the past six months in crypto is we've seen the importance of decentralized systems at the core um, of uh, some of this new technology and also the importance of safety and security. And Uniswap has been committed to safety and security since day one and never takes custody of user funds. We are uh, decentral- we built decentralized trading protocols and then products on top of them um, that essentially are 
I mean, that you're not managing actual assets, you're not managing users' assets, you're giving them open source technology uh, and then uh, web and mobile applications to access that technology. So I think what's really different about Uniswap is, again, it's a fundamentally different technology stack from a centralized exchange. It's, an, it's a novel innovation, completely new technology, whereas the, the crypto firms that you saw suffer over the past six months are those that are really using traditional tech, uh, traditional tech stacks traditional centralized exchange models ultimately had risk management failures. And so I think that in our investors recognize and the market recognize that uh, decentralized uh, protocols have unique advantages that not only can benefit crypto markets, but also traditional markets more broadly. And that Uniswap Labs is really committed to, as I mentioned, security, but also bringing more and more users into the space uh, because the entire uh, ecosystem and market uh, needs to grow and, and, again, needs to be more accessible, easier to use, and safer uh, in order for that to happen. What do you think this says about the popularity of decentralized projects in crypto over the longer term? Well, I, my hope is that the benefits of the decentralized protocols uh, will become recognized and that we'll have, again, more products that make them easier to use. Today, it's still a little bit too cumbersome. It's too hard to explain what are the benefits of decentralization or the benefits of being able to um, have different custody models, uh, the transparency, the lower costs that come with decentralized technology infrastructure. It's a lot to explain. And so what we're focused on for the next uh, several years with this funding is making it easier and more accessible for more retail users, but also um, even traditional investors and uh, pools of capital to access the technology and realize its benefits. So I think it's an endorsement of uh, the fundamental innovation in the technology and in decentralized finance. Um, but again, when it's being built by teams that really understand the importance of security and simple user experiences. There's still a concern about security. Why have there been so many hacks in DeFi and how do we prevent those in the future? Yeah. Well, just as with any financial system or technology, uh, there are, of course, risks um, that need to be managed. Some of those are technical. So uh, having audited a, a code is critical. Um, we have multiple audits, multiple third-party audits of all of our code. Um, it's a key part of deploying smart contracts. And so I think that's a, a best practice that in an open source um, sort of open garden where people can just launch new technology, uh, they don't necessarily, not all projects necessarily go through those same controls. Um, so that's a key part of that technical risk. There's also an element of just having a security mindset of anticipating all the different things that can go wrong, um, both in the um, in anything that's a financial transaction and also in, de in deploying smart contracts. When you deploy a smart contract to a blockchain, it's effectively permanent. It's effectively immutable. And so the level of like battle testing in advance of that is, is huge. Um, and not all projects treat deployment as a final commitment. And so it means that sometimes um, people are launching projects and users may access them um, and not realize the risk that they're taking. So I think that we're going to see um, we're going to see a whole new level of um, security and safety expectation among users and cautiousness. And so winning users' trust, earning their trust, earning their um, their business is going to become all the more important because unfortunately many people have been burned. But that is in the context of DeFi, where many of the risks are, as I said, technical. Uh, over the past six months, many of the large crypto challenges and failures have been failures of risk management, have been traditional financial services style uh, failures um, of not managing users' funds accurately. And I think that it's it's really important that people understand those companies, uh, you know, Celsius and the like, um, were not we're not using the technology that we Uniswap use, for example. Um, they were traditional 
their traditional models, or frankly, they mismanaged their users' assets. So two important, I think it's very important we disaggregate those risks. Uh, the financial risk management that is critical for those companies that do touch users' funds, unlike us, and then also the technical risks. All right, uh, Mary Catherine Later, COO of Uniswap. Thanks for sharing your perspective. Guilty. That is the verdict from a jury in the fraud trial against Nicola founder Trevor Milton. Let's bring back Ed Ludlow, who's been following this case every step of the way. Ed, you've been in the courtroom. Tell us a little bit more about the verdict today. Yeah, so Trevor Milton was found guilty on one count of securities fraud and two counts of wire fraud. It's important to note that he was found not guilty on the most serious count of securities fraud, which would carry a maximum penalty of 25 years in prison. Um, but this was an astonishing case. It went on for a month and essentially what the government proved was that Trevor Milton lied, made misleading statements and exaggerations about the company's technology, its progress, its order book, but crucially that those statements had pushed investors, retail investors in particular, to buy the stock. That is the burden of proof that was on the government and the jury returned an astonishingly quick verdict on Friday. Right. Why do you think the jury returned it so quickly? It's, it's impossible to say, Em. I mean, it has been a one-month trial. Um, th there was a pause for around 10 days because some of the defence counsel got COVID, frankly. Um, but one juror that Bloomberg spoke to leaving the court simply said the evidence was clear. The, the, the government presented a number of witnesses, many NECLA employees, present employees, people that were there at the time, documentary evidence, appearances from Trevor, text messages. Um, and the defense's argument was very simple, that, that basically Trevor genuinely believed that what he was saying was true. He never set out to defraud everyone and that everyone around him at the company was saying the same thing and that if investors really looked at regulatory filings documents, they would have found the information that should have informed their decision anyway. So it's, it's been a very busy, long trial, but five hours, that's a very quick verdict. Interesting. And you made the point that the defense argued he didn't lie, he just maybe over-promised and, right. and said what he believed to be true, with, which is something that is, you know, maybe uh, kind of common in Silicon Valley. So it'll be interesting to see right. how this impacts the, the tech industry more broadly. Ed Ludlow, thank you for your excellent reporting on uh, this case. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Coming up next week, we've got NextView Venture Partners, Melody Co. joining us to talk about uh, women-led and minority-led startups. Um, have a wonderful weekend, everyone. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.